It's graduation season. That means that there are a lot of people going out and looking for jobs, right? Hopefully. Hopefully parents are probably thinking that at least. Um, have you ever been in a job interview? Or have you ever been somebody interviewing somebody for a job? One of the questions that uh, at UNL in the math department we like to ask of the people interviewing is we ask them this question, how good of a fit is this candidate for our job? How good of a fit does this person make for our culture going on here? You see, we have something, and that is that we want to make sure that the person that we're bringing on to our team is going in the same direction that we are, that they've got the same agenda that we've got. There might be somebody who's really well qualified out there, but if they're going to go off, that's not going to help us. We need to make sure that they've got the agenda that we've got. We've got to make sure they're aligned with our team. Same thing happens actually in our Christian walk, I think. You see, there are times where I think we come in with a different agenda than maybe what Christ's agenda is. Maybe we're not fully aligned with Christ in our Christian walk. Maybe you came in today with an agenda, something that you wanted to accomplish as you came into church today. Maybe that's an agenda that's aligned with Christ, or maybe it's not. So the question that I want you to consider today is, are you aligned with Christ today? You take a car in periodically to check the alignment, and today is your checkup in your Christian walk. Am I aligned with Christ? So we're going to go in our Bibles to Mark 3, and we're going to look at verses 20 through 35 as we address this idea of being aligned with Christ. In Mark 3, what we're going to see is we're going to see some tension. We're going to see tension in the way the world rejects Christ. After we see the tension, Christ is going to explain this tension to us and why it exists. And then finally, we'll see some resolution as this tension comes to a conclusion. So in your Bibles, in Mark 3, we're going to go ahead and open with prayer, and then we'll get into the actual scripture itself. So let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we pray that you would help us to deepen our understanding of your word. And as we deepen our understanding, I pray that you would change our hearts to mold them to be more like Christ, so that we would be aligned more closely with what Christ has for each of us in our life, so that we could more closely follow Christ as we proceed. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark 3. The book of Mark is a, a shorter book. You can actually read it in one sitting if you want to. It takes a little bit of time, but it is possible to read it in one sitting. Uh, it is a moving book. And what I would say is that probably no other book of the Bible has quite so much forward motion. I imagine Mark had to have had a ton of energy because the way he writes is with energy. He's constantly giving new things. His favorite word in, in what we would translate it as apparently is immediately. He uses the word immediately a lot. You know, this happened, and then immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened. That's the picture we get in the book of Mark. It's a very cool text in that way. By the time we get to Mark 3, several things have happened. Mark has introduced us to this character, Jesus. He's told us a few things about this character, Jesus. He has told us that 
He's proclaiming some new message that hasn't been heard. He has some sort of power because he's doing miracles. He's doing things that normal people don't get to do. He's throwing out demons. And by the time we get to chapter 3, there's this sort of question sitting in the atmosphere. Who's going to follow him? Who will be the the followers of Christ, the Christ followers? If you look in your bulletin, the purpose of Southview Baptist Church that we have listed, the purpose of Southview Baptist Church is to grow Christ followers. The book of Mark directly addresses that purpose. What does it look like to be a Christ follower? And in Mark 3, we're going to get the answer to that question. What does it look like to be a Christ follower? So we're going to start by reading verses 20 through 22. And I want you to pay attention to the tension that arises in these verses. Verse 20 says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. And they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. By the prince of the demons, he is driving out demons. Look at the tension. The tension that we see is that those who should have been willing to follow Jesus reject him and his work. Those that should have been willing to follow Jesus. Did you catch the two parties involved in this scene? The first party is Jesus' own family. The family that should have supported Jesus thought he was crazy, out of his mind. If we look forward to verse 32, the family is going to show up later. We're not going to, it doesn't happen yet, but the family is actually going to show up. I want you to notice in verse 32, who's with the family. It's his brothers and his mother. So the family in verse 20 through 21 apparently included even his own mother, Mary, that thinks he is out of his mind. What is he doing? There are crowds gathered all around. There's people hearing because it's talk we've never heard before. In fact, it's so busy that he's not even taking time to eat because of all of these people. This is madness. They had a culture of shame and honor. Everything was about shame and honor. You do something, does that bring honor to your family or does it bring shame to your family? And when you've got your oldest son out there drawing crowds because he's saying things that are revolutionary, that's not going to bring honor to your family. It's probably going to bring shame to your family. And I think the family that should have supported Jesus, should have been completely behind him, is worried that he's going to shame their family. Because what he's doing is not their agenda. It says that they came to take charge of him. The word for take charge can mean to seize or to arrest. The family literally is planning to show up to take Jesus by force and drag him back to Galilee to put an end to this madness of this man who's preaching a revolutionary message. Look at the other group that shows up in verse 22. In verse 22, the teachers of the law show up. 
who are the teachers of the law? These are the scribes. These are those who knew the Old Testament really, really well, probably better than any of us know the Old Testament. They should have recognized Jesus as Lord. Instead, they say he must be demon-possessed. I want you to think about the implications of that for just a second. They're attributing, they're saying he's demon-possessed. That means that the things that Jesus were doing were not ordinary, regular, everyday things. They were supernatural. But the agenda of these scribes, of these teachers of the law, was such that they reject Jesus. And instead of explaining it as, this is the Lord that the prophets have told us about, they say, it doesn't fit my agenda. He must be demon-possessed. I want nothing to do with him. He doesn't fit my agenda. The religious leaders should have recognized Jesus as Lord. Instead, they thought he was demon-possessed. All right, I have an illustration, a question for you. We'll see if anybody knows the answer to this. What do John Elway, Todd Blackledge, Jim Kelly, Tony Easton, and Ken O'Brien all have in common? (laughs) They are all NFL quarterbacks that were chosen before Dan Marino. Dan Marino, who went on to have, if you don't know who Dan Marino is, that's okay. He had 40 NFL records when he retired. Great quarterback. He was chosen as the sixth quarterback in the 1983 NFL draft. The team that probably should have taken him was the Baltimore Colts. I know Baltimore Colts doesn't quite sound right nowadays, but was the Baltimore Colts. They passed on him. Instead, they chose John Elway. But John Elway had a different agenda. John Elway had no desire to play for the Baltimore Colts and refused to play for them. So Baltimore wound up getting no quarterback in 1983, and the Colts would wait decades before they actually got a decent quarterback because it didn't align with their agenda. Their idea of what was greatness was different than what was greatness, and they missed the boat. I think the scribes and Pharisees, they had a vision, tunnel vision, and they missed it. They missed the opportunity to see Jesus, the Lord, who was right there. So here's a question for us to consider. Are you consistently choosing Jesus in your life? Or are you rejecting Jesus or parts of Jesus or aspects of what Jesus wants for you because you don't like something that he has to say? This is the mistake that the teachers of the law made. This is the mistake that Jesus' family made. They didn't like what he had to say. And so they pushed him out, called him crazy, called him demon-possessed. You might be thinking to yourself at this point, well, that seems a little bit odd. Why did they reject him? And Jesus actually gives us the answer directly in the narrative here. So let's look at verses 23 through 27, and I want you to listen to Jesus' explanation for why he's being rejected by those who should have recognized him. Jesus says, So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. 
Did you catch Jesus' explanation there? He says that we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus came in opposition to the kingdom of Satan. We shouldn't be surprised that the world is rejecting Jesus because Jesus came in opposition to the kingdom of Satan. He came to oppose it. The kingdom of Satan is a present reality. It is something that we deal with. 1 Peter 5.8 describes Satan as a lion that prowls around looking for someone to devour. But Jesus came to defeat that kingdom and destroy that kingdom. In verse 25, or sorry, uh, verse 26, we learn about a strong man. I'm, I'm still wrong. Verse 27. We learn about a strong man. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. The strong man in this verse is Satan. But the person who comes to tie him up is Jesus. Jesus came, in part, to bind Satan, to destroy Satan, to end Satan's reign. And what is the result of that there in verse 27? It says, then he can plunder the strong man's house. The idea of plunder is to take things and remove them out of the grip of the strong man. In this case, it's the idea of granting freedom. Jesus demonstrated already in Mark, in Mark chapter 1, that he was stronger than Satan. He faced temptation from Satan in the wilderness and won. He defeated demons by casting them out. Jesus came to bind the kingdom of Satan, to destroy the kingdom of Satan. And there's a really, really important aspect of this for our life here today. Because if you are a Christ follower, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the one who can give you that freedom that he came to provide, then you're on the winning side. No matter what's going on in the world around you, you're on the winning side. Jesus faced rejection. There was that tension of Jesus' rejection earlier. But he's got this important reminder that, yes, the world is rejecting Christ. But you're on the winning side. And that's really important. We need to remind ourselves that we're on the winning side. There is a, a theological detour that we need to take for just a second. So bear with me here as we look at verses 28 and 29, because these are really, really hard verses. And I don't want to just skip them and say, good luck on it. We're going to address it. And then we'll move on to the next point. So let's take this theological aside, and let's look at verses 28 and 29. 28 says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. This is commonly referred to as the unforgivable or unpardonable sin or blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. One first point, don't ever read verse 29 without first reading verse 28, okay? This is a good general rule when you're reading the Bible. Don't read one verse without reading those around it. And this one goes here too. What does verse 28 tell us? There is forgiveness, okay? Jesus came to defeat Satan, and he offers forgiveness. If you are in sin, Jesus offers forgiveness. And that is vitally important that we recognize that Jesus offers forgiveness to each one of us. 
Verse 29 is the one that people get caught up on. Does this mean that if I say something against the Holy Spirit, I could never be forgiven? Okay, verse 29 is not idle speak. It's not the idea that, you know, you tripped and fell and said something and all of a sudden you just blasphemed the Holy Spirit. That's not what's going on here. Verse 29 is talking about a rebellious rejection of God himself. This is what's happening. Somebody sees Jesus right here. They're seeing him do miracles. They know the Old Testament. They're watching him do it. They're like, hmm, this has to be God. I don't want it to be God, so I'm going to say it's a demon. It is rebellious rejection, saying that if this is you, God, I want nothing to do with you. That's what it means to blaspheme against God. To see him, have no doubt this is God, and say, I want nothing to do with it. Uh, John Grasnick says, it's one's preference for darkness, even though he's been exposed to light. So here's what I will say. If you are concerned that you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you haven't. Okay? If you're worried about it, you don't need to worry about it. You haven't done it. Um, it's somebody who is just so hardened and rejected it so much that there's They've seen it, and they've just said, I don't want anything to do with it. And probably God's going to just take them at that point anyways, because they don't have a chance to accept them anymore. So I, it's just not something we need to worry about in our life. Jesus doesn't even say that the scribes have committed this sin. He just says, watch out for it. I, th I find that kind of interesting, too. All right, so that's our theological aside. We don't have to worry about doing it. We have the Holy Spirit. Um... We've seen tension. We've seen explanation for that tension. Now let's get some resolution to that tension. So the tension was people reject Jesus. The explanation was the kingdom of Satan is a reality and Jesus came to defeat that kingdom. The resolution is that there are people who accept Jesus. There are those who are part of Jesus' true family, those who do the will of God. Let's read verses 31 through 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Those who are part of Jesus' true family do the will of God. The first thing we saw there was the arrival of Jesus' physical family. And that sets the stage for a very profound declaration by Jesus. Remember why Jesus' family was coming. They wanted to bind him up and take him away because of the shame that they were worried about, because his message was so revolutionary. It seems like they ask for some private conversation. They want to pull him aside. They want to give him a good talking to. This isn't how we act, Jesus. We don't stand out. We behave ourselves. We fit in with society. They wanted to give him their talking. And Jesus asks a profound question in verse 33. Who are my mother and brothers? I want you to recognize there's right there. And Jesus says, who are they? 
I'll tell you who my mother and my family, who those who are following me are. And his answer is that those who follow Jesus, those who are part of Jesus' family, are those who do the will of God, who obey the will of God. There's a really cool wordplay here in the Greek that we have no way of really capturing in the English. In verses 13 through 19, Jesus appointed the 12 disciples. Okay, so he appointed 12 disciples. He chose 12 disciples. The word for appointed is the same word as do. So the Greek word poie means to appoint, or it also means to do something. In verse 14, Jesus appointed 12 disciples. In verse 35, the people that are with Jesus are those who do the will of God. I think there's an important play on words that Mark is making here. Those who are appointed by Jesus do the will of God. Those who are chosen to follow Jesus, who are Christ's followers, do the will of God. There's an old hymn that many of you may be familiar with. It's called, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. The exact background story on the hymn is debatable, but the story that I've heard about this hymn is that it's an Indian prince who wrote it. So, uh, in the country of India, a prince was presented with the gospel, with Jesus, the opportunity to follow Jesus. And this prince thought about it and thought, you know, if I follow Jesus, my family will disown me. I'll lose my family. But more than just my family, I'll lose the kingdom. Because if my family disowns me, I'm no longer a prince. He weighed the costs, counted the costs. And you can guess by the title of the hymn what he decided. said, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though no one join me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. He chose to obediently follow Jesus, casting everything else behind him, aiming for Jesus and only Jesus. If you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, you are part of Christ's family. You're part of his inner circle. My question for you is, do you act like it? by obediently obeying God's will? Do you act like part of the family of God by obeying the will of God? I've got three questions that I sort of want to, to bring together to ask you that are based on those three points. The first was uh, the tension, and what we saw was people who had the wrong agenda. So my question for you is, what agenda did you bring in today? What was your agenda? What does your agenda need to be? What is it that Christ is asking you to do this week to follow him? Do you need to change your agenda? My second question, and this one is important, are you part of the right side? We talked about the winning side. 
Christ is the winning side. Have you made a decision to trust Jesus as your personal Savior? If you haven't, that's the first step that you should be doing. My third question. Do your spiritual relationships reveal that you are obediently following the will of God? Are you making relationships with people to show that you're obediently following the will of God? I need to get an alignment done on my car, so I've got some shocks and struts up there. Or, uh, that's one of my projects in June, is to get an alignment done on it. You see, periodically, cars come out of alignment. The tires need to be straightened out according to the manufacturer's specifications. Because if a car is out of alignment, there are three things that can happen, or that do happen. One, it's harder to drive. It doesn't drive straight. Two, it wears out the tires really fast. And three, it gets bad gas mileage. In our spiritual life, I think there's analogs. If we're not aligned with Christ, think first of all, it's harder for the Holy Spirit to direct us and to lead us. Think second of all, it's just exhausting on us spiritually. It wears us out spiritually. And third, our life isn't efficient. We'll find that the things that we're trying to do aren't working out. So today's your chance to get an alignment done. Are you following Christ? Are you aligned with Christ? Are you aligning yourself with the will of God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ and for the salvation that he provides, for the opportunity that he provides for us to follow him, and that he does call us. He appoints us to follow him. I pray that as we think through this week, that we would think through what it is that you would have us to do, to more closely follow the will of God, that we would put aside the agendas that we may bring and adopt the agenda of Christ in the confidence that we're going to be on the winning side and willing to obediently follow your will as you guide us through life. Help us to commit in a deeper way to following you. In Jesus' name, amen.